0: Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time, the Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th.
1: the total soccer show and it's one of those shows where we let you dear listener do half of the work as we attempt to answer the questions you have put before us my name is ryan bailey joining me today is a man who shines brighter than a
2: swedish olympic jersey too soon it's taylor rockwell Uh, it's not too soon and i will take that because those jerseys are bright extra bright i would say even brighter than normal for a sweden jersey i think you and Graham were the ones to point that out
1: Yeah, the brightest highlighter pen that your accountant has cannot match uh, the brightness of those Sweden Olympic jerseys. They are quite interesting jerseys and they're made by Uniqlo, which is quite interesting. But the one thing that gets me, Taylor, is the colour of the shirt is different to the yellow on their shorts. They've got like Mm -hmm. a more classic yellow on the shorts for the number and the trim. And then this highlighter pen they're wearing on top. I can't stand it.
2: It's weird. And it's it's definitely it reminds me of uh, myself before being with my wife when I was like, I'm wearing like two vague shades of blue, but blue matches. So that's fine. And she was the one who had to teach me that, no, the same color matches, different colors do not match. And it feels like maybe that's probably that maybe I went back in time and created the Sweden uniform. And for that past me, future me apologizes.
1: Uh, last night i actually got told off by my wife for wearing navy blue and black together apparently that's a bad thing well
2: that's ridiculous that's just fine
1: i know i know i know i am a ridiculous <laughs> man
2: also with <laughs> us is
1: another ridiculous man who must be happy with team gb's kits at the olympics because they're basically a scotland kit it's graham rudman
3: <laughs> i mean i had heard something called the olympics had started that's fun <laughs> yeah? maybe i don't know is it (laughs) uh tell us how you really feel graham (laughs) well the thing is i'm doing a lot of olympic work over the next two weeks so uh, i hope no one from my employer is listening to this olympics they're great
1: i hope you're doing it for more than two weeks as well because the games last longer than
3: that oh ryan why did you have to tell me that i mean yeah i'm super excited and it's gonna be great fun but no, well, I did enjoy the kit. The, the kits is, has been the best part so it's far. It's too late, Graham. It's too late. You can't get <laughs> out of this now. <laughs> <laughs> the thing that was more offensive to me was a, a kit, a football kit without a badge is just wrong to me. Yeah. And the USA wearing, like, I think it's exactly the same kit, and the kit's fine, but it just has USA written rather than a badge. I, I, that's I, I don't like that. Yeah. Uh, Team GB, of course, with a badge
1: on their jerseys uh, in their opening game, which they won. Uh, Team GB
2: winning their opening (laughs) Olympic game. This is what it felt like. This is what it felt like, Graham. I see now. (laughs) I see what's happening here. (laughs) Let's
1: move swiftly away from that subject to uh, introduce our other co-host today. It's a man who is no doubt
4: relaxing in Arizona's cool 106 degree heat today. It's Joe Lowry. I mean, that is a balmy day. It's a little humid if I'm going to be a uh, full on complainer mode here. And I know, Ryan, that you and Graham are suffering as well with the summer heat. Uh, and, and as yeah. you guys pointed out to me before we started recording, you guys don't have the infrastructure to protect yourselves. So I'm just hoping that you guys are not uh, going to perish from heat stroke anytime soon.
1: Yeah, so I'm in the UK at the moment and Graham is as well and uh, it is 75 degrees today in the area I'm at and I don't think I've ever been hotter and sweatier than I am right now because nobody has air conditioning in this country which is wonderful for the one week a year you might need it which happens to be this week. Uh, Early this week by the way gents I was in Windsor, I went to Windsor Castle where there were no tourists because that's not a thing right now. Um, It was 86 degrees Uh, And it was like unbearably hot, even though 86 degrees is a normal day in Charlotte, North Carolina, where my home is. The pavement outside Windsor Castle was so hot that it melted. 86 degrees. They brought a truck out and they were sort of scooping on like gravel and asphalt onto the onto it because it had melted and like your shoe made an imprint in it. So yeah, that's we don't even have the right asphalt and
4: concrete here to deal with eighty. You need better, you need better (laughs) pavement. Good gracious, what are you making that stuff out of? There's
3: there's two there's two things that the UK can't deal with. One is snow; we're not good at dealing with that either. And the other thing is is any kind of heat. Um, any of the middle stuff, you know, kind of grey, cloudy drizzle, we're good with that. <laughs> middle stuff, but um, yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, I, I just to just to bring it back to, to kind of football talk, the, the nah. Andy Robertson, and, <laughs> it's well, it's that. vaguely football related. Um, Andy Robertson tweeted something yesterday, which I have never related to more than than anything with this tweet which was um a picture of him abroad in 30 degree heat which you know he looks very uh, fresh and and airy with his sunglasses and his shorts on and then a picture of him 30 degrees in the united kingdom where um he looks rather worse for wear shall we say which sums up how i feel we we just can't
2: cope with this we don't have any air con send help (laughs) Uh, wait ryan i have a question for you though first of all did you say that the asphalt around windsor palace was melting Windsor Castle, darling. Yes. Windsor Castle. Yes. So the physical infrastructure of your country is declining just as much as everything else. That's good to know. Uh, it's and literally, the, other- the road that the Queen rides on to get to her yep. house is melting. Yes. On a still sort of joking, but mostly serious uh, line of reasoning, if you all, if England were to get the 2030 World Cup, and there was some speculation that the unrest around the Euro final might make that more difficult. If the FA implemented a policy of we're just going to buy everyone one window unit air conditioner, do you think I that think would yes. cut down on the rowdiness because people would be more likely to be watching like in small groups inside? Or do you think it wouldn't matter?
1: I think one week after that happened, everyone would sell them, probably. <laughs> ah, <laughs> Is that
3: sound Yeah, or the air conditioning would give everyone more energy
2: to be even more rowdy. Oh, um, yes. So...
3: Yeah, you all have just turned fully
2: into a pirate island is what I'm hearing. It's like everyone's Yarr. just selling stuff and bartering stuff. It's way too hot. It's rowdy. People are drunk in, the, in public. It's a whole thing. Blackbeard oh. should make a reappearance.
1: <laughs> Talking of selling and bartering, also in Windsor, I took a picture of this and put it on my Twitter. They had these like... 100 pound notes with like sports teams on them there was a 100 pound note with Tottenham players on it Harry Kane on a 100 pound note which is a novelty that some people might want to buy and I basically made the joke that this is why we need a cashless society because we don't need (laughs) Tottenham players on any monetary uh, uh, notes or coins of any kind and the Soccer Talk Lads podcast replied to my tweet and let me know that um, I should think twice about that opinion about needing a cashless society because PSG have their own crypto (laughs) And I looked into it and... It is quite a big thing. It's got a market cap of $37 million, the PSG crypto. And Killian
4: coin? Killian coin.
1: Killie coin. And not long after that, not long after discovering that, I saw Inter Milan's new shirts, which they've revealed the one with the actual sponsor on it now, which is the Interfan token by socio.com, uh, which also does a fan token, a kind of crypto of sorts, for Milan, Juventus, PSG, Atleti. Stop this ride. I want to get off. Thank you very much.
2: Yeah, I like the pirate barter economy better than cryptocurrency, if I'm being honest,
3: <laughs> what's I the PSG? It more. What's the PSG Kelly coin that you say? That was a joke, but there was the PSG
1: fan <laughs> token, uh, uh which, which is very much something you can trade, and as I say, a market cap of 37 million dollars, so it's not just a couple of kids doing this. You can get it, um, uh, at blockspot.io like, if you're interested. Is there,
2: is there any way that isn't uh, a royal family somewhere maybe hyperinflating that cryptocurrency so then they can claim more money and then have more? revenue to then spend on players because that feels like they are have to be exploiting some sort of loophole in financial fair play
1: yeah it feels like something that elon musk is going to buy a team then he'll tweet yeah. about that crypto and then he'll make the market go insane that seems to be and then his main all. duty perfect and then he'll go to space fun <laughs> why don't we get to some listener questions because we've yeah, been rambling right. for quite a long time <laughs> uh we've got a cracker to kick us off with from kenneth sayden thank you very much kenneth for your question this is one, Kenneth, that kind of divided the team when we were having our mm-hmm. pre, pre-chat before this podcast. The question, what is the reason and maybe history for preliminary rosters for tournaments? Why can't teams, asked Kenneth, just name their players at the deadline right before the tournament. So at many tournaments worldwide, your Euros, your World Cups, your, your, your Gold Cup, your CONCACAF competitions, there are preliminary rosters which have more players on them than the final rosters. As an example for the Euros, England named 33 players to their preliminary rosters who played a couple of games before that was brought down to the 26-man team which went to the Euros. Italy named 34 players. Spain, they named 24 because they went for two less than the 26 they were allowed because isn't Spain fun? So this one, as I say, divided the team. There is, there's some different definitions and maybe some different reasons for preliminary rosters in different regions. But Joe larry has got the
4: answer completely, hundred percent correct. So I'll go to you first, Joe. I'm on team baffled by the existence of these. And 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 though Ryan, to be fair, the way that you and Graham sort of baby talked me through it using small words that I can understand. (laughs) The European examples make sense, right? England having 30-some-odd players to go and play pre-tournament games with that number of players makes perfect sense. Here in the U.S. and in our region, we just call 50-man preliminary rosters or 60-man. I think the Gold Cup preliminary roster might have been 60 players. You can't bring everyone in. So that's the purpose of these rosters in the United States and the surrounding countries before tournaments is not to get a look at this group playing pre-tournament friendlies. And as far as I'm aware, we're still not sure why CONCACAF and and US soccer does exactly what it does, but the European way of preliminary rosters, that I can get behind.
1: Yeah, it's it's an odd situation because looking at it on the face of it, Joe, as you say, if you look at it from the European example it's about basically having more options for your final squad uh, if you can train together and you have more people training together it's it's an insurance against injuries it's an insurance against maybe weighing up your options if you look at England for example Trent Alexander-Arnold going out before the uh, final squad was named they had options to sort of replace him with who were also training with the camp so it was an easy transition for them to make and sort of similar stories with Italy and the like as well where it gets confused and also you know it's, it's, it's a chance for you know the teams to bond together, uh, and, and particularly in times of COVID, more options is a better thing. So it certainly works in that example. Where it does confuse us, as you've mentioned there, Joe, is when you have 50 and 60-man preliminary rosters. But Taylor
2: Rockwell's got the 100% answer once again. Taylor, I'll come to you. (laughs) Oh, 100%. 100%. This is my favorite type of listener question because it's one that I was like, well, it's because of this. And then if the next question were why, I would not have an answer for that. Because yes, I think you all have hit the nail on the head for what a provisional roster is, why they exist, and those 60-player rosters that that exist uh, confused me a bit more. I reached out to a few different people. It tends to be CONCACAF that requires. Those provisional rosters. The explanation for that is a bit murkier. The two possibilities that I've heard are number one, they want to confirm that countries are going to be participating in certain competitions and a way to do that is to make sure that they have enough eligible players. But I think that eligibility is also part of it is that in that they don't want to have to determine eligibility and make sure everybody is who they say they are and is able to play for a national team all at once. So I think the provisional roster well ahead of time allows them to maybe vet some players, make sure that everybody should be playing for that national team, and maybe even allows them to facilitate some of the paperwork and visa processing, things like that.
1: So that, so it's part of a long term pattern of bureaucracy then. They're just molding it into having bigger, bigger rosters.
2: I, I'm, that would be my guess. I would say that's not necessarily 100% the answer. You'd have to ask a CONCACAF official who would give you probably a runaround about how the Gold Cup is the most prestigious tournament in the world and how we should all be very excited about it. But, yeah. you don't, uh,
4: t- Taylor, you don't have CONCACAF officials in your Rolodex? Come on. Wow. I that's, mean, I'm, I'm disappointed. I, I think what I'm implying is that that was the response I got from <laughs> CONCACAF was about,
2: uh, how, yes, how like we must always make sure that the, The splendor of the competition, blah, 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 blah. But yeah, I think roughly speaking, it's basically to make sure that there will be enough players, that there will be the countries that are supposed to be there, and the countries that are there are bringing players that are supposed to be playing for them. Even then, players fall through the cracks, and sometimes people play somebody who's not eligible, and then we run into a different issue.
1: Is there, and I don't mean this to be patronizing, but is there an element of, we call a lot of people up, so... It's almost like a participation trophy in some ways like you're giving more people the the boost of being called up to a CONCACAF team. Is there an element of that in any way?
2: Or am I just I being a bit I don't think so because uh, they don't like as we're talking about here like they don't really call them up. You're on that roster it means that you like might get a look it basically means the coach is potentially taking a deeper look or a longer look, but I think that it's CONCACAF requiring these to be released. I, but Greg Berhalter, I doubt, is going to tell us who his top 50 or 60 players are. I think he doesn't want his hand forced that way. So mm. I think – and we know Berhalter will call in. Like Daryl DK was training with the team despite not being on the Nations League roster. He's in camp. He can train. He just can't be in the match day squad and participate in games. And I think Berhalter will do that and will do it sort of off the radar. Not that he's making a secret of it, but he doesn't want it to be, here's my 40-player list. 23 of these players are playing. So why he would want his hand forced, I'm really not sure.
4: Well, and Graham. I will add, sorry, sorry, real quick. I will add, I think coaches can use these preliminary rosters as a weapon. They can use it as an opportunity to let players know, hey, we're watching you right on that Gold Cup preliminary roster for the U.S. Kevin Paredes uh, and and Jonathan Gomez were two left backs, and I'm, I'm almost certain we're on that roster. They're both dual nationals. So Greg Brawlthorpe can say, hey, we're, we're, we're doing, uh, we're paying attention to you. You're doing a good job. You're on this roster. That's you're probably not going to get called in, but it can be a way to show players that, okay, you're in our plans. We're thinking about you. We know what you're doing. You're doing a good job. Keep it up. Still, I mean, that, that does, that's not the reason for why they exist, but that is a use of them.
1: That was a more diplomatic way of my participation trophy statement, was it not? <laughs>
4: <laughs> Essentially, yeah, no ribbon, no ribbons involved. But yeah,
1: <laughs> Graham, the amount of column inches that are dedicated to preliminary squads in, say, the Euros in Europe, can you imagine the chaos if uh, European teams had to name sixty
3: players before a tournament? Oh, oh geez, I mean, I'm not even sure. There are 60 Scottish professional players uh, for <laughs> us to to publish a list from. But um, no, it, it, I think that was what was causing the confusion. Was Were I there was 23
2: not... at the Euros, Graham? Oh, burn.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've just taken a ribbing in Soccer 101 before this, and now now you're giving it to me as well, Taylor. Well, uh, I wasn't there for that, so i got to get my licks in when I can. That's true, that's true. <laughs> anyway... <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think that was what was causing the confusion was I certainly wasn't aware that CONCAF nations did name 50 to, you know, 60 players for a tournament, which just seems madness to me. And as Ryan's kind of covered already, the, the European and, and maybe rest of the world model makes perfect sense in terms of having a, a camp and calling them in and looking at options. The one thing that I would say is it sounds like from what you're saying that the CONCAF method is almost like an admin exercise and that, that admin exercise does happen in the rest of like uh, for other national teams so for example i'm Eric laporte but when he switched from uh, france to spain has to lodge that uh that switch with fifa and so that suggests that fifa have a list of kind of international el- eligible players for each national team it's just that the countries won't publish that and so i just i just wonder what concaf nations get from publishing it like could they not just keep it in-house and that would kind of save everyone the bother um well every other decision that concave has made has been pretty sound
1: so let's just uh, trust their judgment on this <laughs> shall we gents how about we uh, we we leave it there um thank you thank you very much kenneth for your question there let's go to one from ed ritter who asks uh, something um a little more uh, musical how did sweet caroline become a soccer anthem sweet caroline being the neil diamond song from 1969 apparently inspired by john f kennedy's daughter that's something i was today years old when i learned obviously um uh, a big song in sports big song in u.s sports my understanding is that the boston red sox sing it every game match what do you call baseball i don't know uh, but game, lots of game, uh um, game. <laughs> game
2: thank
1: <laughs> game. you very much it's yeah. very popular in um, college sports we'll called a match uh, game football. match game <laughs> match game Mm -hmm. set it's actually a set match game inning yeah yeah there is It's set game match inning event (laughs) that they hold in the massachusetts area yes indeed (laughs) um and yeah it's popular in college football um and it's become a thing in european soccer as well you will have heard or maybe seen on the broadcast of euro 2020 that england fans were singing it very loudly and that's a relatively new thing um and it's quite big in boxing it's quite big in cricket as well but uh i've got a couple of suggestions for this one
3: but uh graham i'm going to come to you first sweet caroline what do you know um it's a bit of a strange one this i mean that my my actual explanation of how sweet caroline became a football anthem is uh alcohol <laughs> 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 I mean, is during great. the euros during the euros that is the real explanation but it, no really it does it seems to have become a bit of an england anthem by Accident at Euro twenty twenty mm-hmm. where I'm um, and by uh, Ryan by the sounds of it you may have read the same article as I did, um, but after the win over Germany the the Wembley DJ rather than rather than putting on uh, Vindaloo which is a time honoured England classic Ugh. he put on Sweet Caroline just kind of on a on a bit of a hunch and the the crowd inside inside Wembley went along with it, and I guess some of the lines in it are you know good times never felt so good reaching out uh, touching me is is very very much reflected the joyous relief at the tournament of kind of being allowed back into a soccer stadium and being around other people and it kind of felt like a uh it, it as i say it reflected that joy so um there's not really an explanation of it's not it's not something that as far as i'm aware anyway maybe one of you guys has a different um story but it's not something that's that's linked to something specific it's more just reflective of the the atmosphere that was around the euros and and england fans in particular
2: yeah, that was a uh, really yeah. good answer, Graham. Thank that you is, for that.
1: <laughs> that is a good answer, definitely. And but it must be said that other teams have sung other soccer teams. Ireland, mm-hmm. for example, there is video online of an Ireland fan singing it from over 15 years ago. Apparently, it's been played at Villa and Chelsea games as well. Whole my theory too, on I this, think. yep, yep. And, and my, my my theory here is and how it's sort of seeped into sports culture outside of US sports is the Americanization and globalization that America has pervade on the rest of the world uh if you go to the mall down the street from where i am right now um it's all american stores now a lot of american stores that weren't there 10 years ago when i first moved to the u.s and it it sort of crept in more and more from american culture as it's easy to access as the internet makes the world a smaller place my theory is that sweet caroline's become more popular because it's been almost borrowed from
2: across the pond if that makes sense taylor any logic in that do you think yeah i think so i think it's it's I believe I'm correct in saying that it started as a sporting like uh, tradition with the Red Sox. And I think even there, it was sort of similar to what it was with England. It was, I think, one front office executive deciding, like, hey, we should play this song and let's see how it goes. And it kind of grew from there to become this institution that everybody knows and sings along with. And I think from there, it probably spreads. And you see the video of that. There's probably also the... Uh, Red Sox connection with England via Liverpool and maybe something happens there. Who knows? Uh, But I think, yeah, you're probably right that that's where it comes from, like the sporting connection. I also just think that like it it is a good party song. It's a good wedding song. My brother, when he was briefly a wedding DJ, DJed his friend's wedding who was like pretty hardcore into like the punk and hardcore scene and and was like bringing all of these different records along those lines and his friend who's a dj was like you should bring sweet caroline he's like get out of here like no one is going to want to hear that we had that on our wedding do not playlist it got played both times and everybody danced and sang along i think it is to graham's point just a song that has catchy lines that people can sort of act out and mime out and sing along with and i think it kind of makes it a fun collective experience
3: that, that was the point I was gonna make, Taylor, is that it's, it's not just a, a soccer or a sports anthem, mm-hmm. it's just an anthem in yeah. general. So if you go to a night, well, I was gonna say a nightclub, I'm pretty sure they don't play <laughs> Sweet Caroline in like Amnesia.
2: Yeah! <laughs> or Ministry of
3: Sound. But if you go to a club pub, shall we say, um, you're gonna get, in the UK, you're gonna get, uh, what are you gonna get, Ryan? Wonderwall? Yeah, you're going to get um, in Scotland, you would get the proclaimers and you're going to get Sweet Caroline. So it's just it's just a reflection of society in general. You know, when you have big speakers and a big crowd, Sweet Caroline makes sense. So I'm, I'm writing my book about how
1: Taylor Rockwell is the most interesting man in the world. I'm just adding another chapter about how his brother was a wedding DJ. Just putting that in as the addendum there. It's an important <laughs> detail. Thank you very much. Adding to the uh, tapestry which I'm
4: building here, Taylor. Uh, Joe, was that answer so good, so good for you? <laughs> yeah, it's, I, I, I agree with everything you guys said. When the key line of the song is bomb, 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 it's going <laughs> to catch on pretty quick.
1: So there you go. bum bum bum. There we go. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with more questions very shortly.
0: This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more.
1: Total Soccer Show, we have returned. We come back with a question from Mr. Christopher Decker. Thank you for your question, Christopher. He asks, in the Eurogroup preview segments, it was pointed out that Team Russia had seven players from the St. Petersburg squad. This got me thinking, says Christopher, about what advantages a national team could have (laughs) with an authoritative regime. Oh boy. If they use a combination of patriotism, coercion (laughs) and cold hard (laughs) rubles to ensure their entire national team roster ended up on the same home domestic league team for the season leading into a Euros or a World Cup. Oh boy, oh boy. So there's quite a question here from Christopher Decker. Uh, I think the obvious answer, the the massive advantage was that if you had all players from the same domestic team playing on your national team, it would be quite an advantage because the players would all know each other. They would all know the system, uh, that First few games of finding your feet in a tournament or the training sessions would be quite, quite a lot easier if your team had played 50, 60 or games. Uh, odd games before that. Um, But Taylor, there's probably a few disadvantages to this premise, I would imagine. Yeah,
2: I'd say so. Uh, First of all, I think it does kind of violate FIFA law. Uh, FIFA theoretically only partners with federations that are free from government uh, influence or interference. That said, the Chinese government pretty heavily involved in the growth of soccer in that country. And I think that's been the case other places. So maybe FIFA wouldn't necessarily step in there. So then if you're looking at what would be the drawbacks, I think like, if you go back in history, there were times when they did do this and it did work out. I think a lot of it, though, has to do nowadays with the fact that like games are so easy to find and footage of those games can be found that like it removes the surprise of things. Because I had to remember this when we were covering the Euros, that there was a time when like the World Cup and the Euros were so exciting because you hadn't seen these teams in four years. So they might go back and... Argentina would develop this wholly new system, everybody would be playing in a back five and Argentina shows up with a back two and you're like, wait, what? What is this now? How do we deal with this? And you don't really get that level of chaos anymore, so then I think it comes down to, yeah, if you just had the familiarity and consistency of these players playing together for a whole season, there's the argument that, yeah, then they can play in a style that's maybe more advanced or has more wrinkles or nuance to it, but it also means they've played together for an entire season, so they might like each other, they might also like each other less, that can happen Um, and it removes I think some of the prestige at the same time because that season leading up to the tournament you're if you're on the bubble if you're in that provisional roster let's say uh, the 900 player provisional roster then like you know that you're being looked at you might sort of try to elevate your performance if you're already being put onto a team where it's like nope you've got your spot that's it some of that competition is gone, and then it just becomes about being better than the person also in the squad who can play that same position. So I think it, it removes some of the competitiveness and then also invites injury. If you have a couple players injured at the end of the season, a lot of that, if that's your number 10, now you've got to scramble to figure something out on the fly, and it puts you in almost as, if not more, a precarious position.
1: Yeah, And to be clear on your point about FIFA law there, Taylor, FIFA law is only ever enacted in instances where uh, there are stadiums where you're not allowed to drink in them and they insist that Budweiser is
2: drunk in them during yes, of
1: a major tournaments. So that's the most important use of I mean- FIFA law.
2: I mean, FIFA law also says, like, a league, and I'm not trying to go down this road, I I promise I'm not, it just is hilarious that, like, the law, like, one of the first laws is you must have, like, a competitive system based on pro-rel, and then with the US and Australia, I think the (laughs) law underneath that is like, unless you don't, like, it really is just like, okay, FIFA, you guys put in some loopholes that aren't even loopholes, they're just like, yeah, disregard that, don't worry about it, it's fine. Just a little Gallic shrug there
1: at the end. I <laughs> yeah. like that. Um, so, yeah, Christopher's question is definitely interesting, but it does have disadvantages because state control of sports teams, mm-hmm. not good. Authoritarianism, nah. not good. Not, not having the selection of every other domestic team in the world, probably not good for your national team as well. Joe, what what do you make of this premise? It's It, it is an interesting one, isn't it?
4: Oh, I'm I'm all about it. I'm not oh, all about the of methods the dictator here. Of Porto is the, yeah. As a dictator, no, I'm not obviously coercion. Blah blah blah. Bad bad bad. You get it. But if we set aside, <laughs> sure. if if we set aside that, that the could mental not have health, sounded more like a dictator hand waving. <laughs> very blasé. That's what a dictator would say. I, I was waving my hands as I said that. I'm not even gonna lie. Um, if we set aside what? the mental health and, and mental stability <laughs> issues that would come with this premise, can you imagine just how much better Italy would have been? At the Euros, if they would played together, like, you know, more than they had. National teams play 10, 15 games a year. Club teams play 50 more if you're a top, top team playing and going deep in a number of different competitions. I mean, we would have seen Jorginho and Verratti and Barella in that front line and in the back line rotations. Everything would have been so sharp and, and much sharper than it was. I bet they would have played Spain off the field in that game. Cause I think that, that semi-final, if I'm remembering correctly, maybe that was a quarterfinal, doesn't matter. Spain outplayed Italy for large stretches of that game. Italy still advanced, but I think we would have seen Italy pass through them. Their pressing would have been sharper. Their, their touches as a unit. And I just think, I think it would make national teams look a lot more like club teams, which mm-hmm. is just generally higher quality soccer. It makes playing the way that Roberto Mancini in Italy want to play. It makes the way that Luis Enrique in Spain want to play actually feasible and and repeatable and it still might be now but just how much sharper would these teams be I I think it'd be kind of fun without the you know coercion and all that
3: Joe Joe I generally agree with you and I always think national teams that have core of cores of players at the same club do tend to have an advantage you know you look at Spain at the the 2010 World Cup when they essentially had a Barcelona core and a Real Madrid core that they kind of merged together however this question it, it jumps off on Russia having seven players in the Zenit St. Petersburg squad at the Euros. And Russia had a dreadful Euros.
0: Yeah. <laughs> you know, they went out in the group stage. Well, so we
3: actually have a, a, like a, some actual evidence and it doesn't exactly point to teams being
4: better. Yeah, Russia. I mean, tactically though, Russia are weak, right? Their their attacking game plan revolves around Artem Zuba and then uh, Moranchuk and a couple other players that are are quality, but like they don't rotate cleanly in possession. They don't have a a very clean defensive approach. They don't, I mean, if you put Roberto Mancini in charge of that Italy team, if you put Jan Andersen, Sweden's manager, Sweden's men's national team manager, in charge of that, Russian, of that Russian team, I bet they look way, way better. So quality of coaching and the coaching staff is important in this illustration. Enrique and Mancini, two of the best coaches at the Euros in my view. Um, but you're right, Graham, it does take a little bit more than just having all the right players. I think you need the management aspect in there too.
2: And this is where I'd like to jump in to say where I think this could work a little bit more, because it has in the past, is essentially what the U.S. national team did in the mid-90s. Are you all familiar with this? Um, where they all wore denim shirts? There we go. <laughs> it is it is that team. No, basically before the '94 World Cup, before Major League Soccer exists... U.S. Soccer recognizes there's a need to get our team like up to the level where they're not going to be embarrassed, but we do not have the domestic league necessary. So if you go and look at that like 94 team, all of those players have an insane number of caps already, despite being relatively young. And it's because U.S. Soccer basically brought the whole team back and had them just in camp for, I think, a year, basically. And they played a ton of friendlies and that's where you would have like I think at one point the U.S. national team played like Darby County like they would play club teams as friendlies but it was a way for that national team that core group of players to basically come together learn the system it was under Bora who probably was the right manager in that in that scenario and it does lead to them making it out of the group in the 94 World Cup I think they end up going pretty far in a Copa America. I could be wrong, but I think there's there's one where they like knock out Brazil and that it's that same core team. It all kind of culminates in destruction in the 98 World Cup, but they did do that and that is a way you could do it, but I think the key thing there would be that at the time, again, information kind of scattered, you don't have as many sources as we have now. To look at that squad and think like, but wait, there's an 18 year old who's about to break through for Bayern Munich or a 19 year old who's now starting for Barcelona. Shouldn't those guys be in the squad? I think you didn't have that depth of talent then that you do now. And so I think even then it would be a harder thing to sell these days disband MLS is
1: that what you're saying Taylor is that the TLDR here
2: <laughs> I mean that's Joe's territory the, di- the dictator can make those sort of sweeping broad movements anyway. <laughs> very well uh, thank you very
1: much for the question Christopher and by the way Joe uh, you did call Russia weak earlier on so uh, your, next, your next few meals I just mm-hmm. say have someone else try them before <laughs> yeah. you eat them uh, my, my advice there it's good advice um, yeah <laughs> we move on to another question here from James Choker I'm sorry if I've mispronounced your surname James Choker do we think that's right? I'm not sure. <coughs> Apologies, James. Uh, who was I the biggest Euro... Th- sm- mm, my mm. bad. Sorry, James. Either way, here's your question. Your first question, because we're giving you a for here. Who was the biggest Euro snub who you think, in retrospect, could have helped their team at the tournaments? Now, there is a few high-profile ones. Sergio Ramos sort of stands out, and the uh, Real Madrid players who were left out of the Spain team. Uh, Joe, why don't I come to you first? I've got a few ideas, but I'd like to hear what you've got to say.
4: So, the, the biggest one that sticks out to me, just because I think this game was maybe the craziest at the Euros, and I'm talking about France versus Switzerland, uh, in the knockout rounds. The biggest player that stands out to me is Dio Uppamecano for France. Mm. Uh, in that game, if, if you recall, Didier Deschamps switched to a back three, and it had, uh, Longley in the middle of that back, uh, in the middle of that center back trio, and he's a good player. He's not Upamecano. Good. Uh, Upamecano is moving to Bayern Munich. He'll be playing under Julian Nagelsmann again this year after uh, playing for him at RB Leipzig. Upamecano is not—he's not the best center back in the world, but he is so so good. He's more mobile than Longley. I think he's probably better on the ball than he is as well. So I just don't really understand. I'm sure that it's about squad dynamics, not that France had too much of that going for them anyway. <laughs> but I'm sure there are underlying reasons for that absence. But, man, he's such an incredible talent. He'll be starting for Bayern Munich this year. I don't really understand why he's left off that group and off that roster. I think he could have made a big impact.
1: I specifically remember Joe texting our group chat during that game saying, Does the shop know that Upper is French? Yeah. Because it, it seems yeah. like a bit remiss that he's not even in the squad. So I totally agree with you there. And I will go as far as saying that there's there's a few French misses. Uh, Tio yeah, Hernandez uh, one. Being, being one as well. Um, with Luca playing. And Tio Hernandez being, um, I think it's eight goals he scored this season. It seemed a bit remiss that he wasn't there. And you could even add in Americ Laporte, who never got his shot with France either. So something about French defenders just not existing on their radar is a uh,
3: is, is, is a theme for me. Uh, uh, Graham, what what are your thoughts? I was just going to... Teo Hernandez was the one that, that stood out for me just because of the way things panned out for France at the Euros where they were playing Adrian Rabio at left-back uh, due to injuries. Uh, but it just, it just seemed like having... One of the best left backs in Europe, which is what Teo Hernandez, at, at Hernandez is at the moment, um, sitting at home watching uh, Rabio play left back seemed like a, a, a little bit of a waste to well, me. Rabio's mum liked it, that's for sure. <laughs> well, it sounds like she didn't like
1: much
2: at all, really, during the Euros. So. <laughs> good point. Good point. Uh, uh, Taylor, what are your thoughts? I also had Teo Hernandez Uh for the exact reasons as Graham. I think he probably could have done a slightly better job in the left-back, left-wing back spot than uh, Adrian Rabio. But I think also what this question led me to realize is that there weren't as many, like, big snubs. Like, there's these ones that we're talking about where it's like maybe it could have been Opa Meccano, maybe it could have been Teo Hernandez. But I think that teams that had, like, in my mind, obvious areas of deficiency. So we know Spain maybe struggled to get the goals they needed in those big moments. So who could they have brought in to be that main striker, that main goal threat? I don't know if there is an obvious candidate there. And I think sort of the vulnerabilities that we are wondering about heading into this tournament, some of them did end up being there, but I think they were vulnerabilities because there wasn't a ton of talent there otherwise. And so even if you look at like the biggest omissions, I feel like it tends to be a lot of players who are from national teams who didn't qualify or have already retired or self withdrew due to injury. So it becomes harder to find obvious ones, which is where I go back to Teo Hernandez probably should have been there. Can I, can I add a, a Scottish one? Just
3: because everything you said, Taylor, there about not, there not being many players who would solve an obvious deficiency. Oh, From a Scottish perspective, there, there is one, um, who has dominated kind of discussion here since we crashed and burned in Euros. That's Ryan Gold. Um, so I don't know if anyone knows who he, who's he yeah. who he is, but he was, he was, as a teenager, he was called Mini Messi and was going to be the next big thing. Then his career completely flatlined. And then last season, he popped up at Firenze in, in Portugal and had an incredible season where he was one of the best players in Portugal, got in the Portuguese League Team of the Year, nine goals and seven assists for Firenze, and throughout the Euros, Scotland lacked guile in the attacking midfield positions. We had spells in the ball in all three games, but couldn't really play through opposition. You know, There was no one there to play that final pass or make something happen, and that's exactly what Ryan Gold, what his game is all about. So I thought he should have been in the squad before the tournament, and he should have been in it after, in hindsight as well. I feel He's like on Gale his way to midfield, He's... Graham. Why didn't you pick Gyle as well?
4: Why didn't I pick who? Sorry, bad joke. Go on, go <laughs> on, Joe. <laughs> I was just gonna say, uh, Ryan is on his way to the Vancouver Whitecaps, so who've been looking for attacking talent yeah, for it is, it's, it's, checks yeah. notes forever. Um so he should uh he should be an asset for them.
1: <laughs> Alright, Jens, That's a good answer. Some good answers to those questions. I think Teon Endez and maybe Open McConnell are our key snubs there. Any more for anyone before we move on? Three, two what? James Joker's next question. How do you think <laughs> Conrad de la Fuente will fit in in Marseille? He's joined Marseille from Barcelona. Uh, he's going to be working under Joe Sampaoli there. Uh, Joe, I come to you first. Your thoughts on Mr. de la Fuente?
4: I think he's gonna fit well, and I really like this move for Conrad de la Fuente. He played a total of thirty six minutes for Barcelona's first team last season. It was time for him to move. he just turned twenty, so it, it it's time for him to be trying to break into a first team squad. It's helpful that Barcelona needed to offload as as much uh wage as many uh as many wages as they can. So at Marseille as you mentioned playing under Sampoli who took over midway through last season. He took over in February of last year as Marseille finished 5th in Liga. Sampoli mostly used 3 at the back shapes with wing backs, so either a 3-4-1-2 or a 3-4-3 in possession. Uh, so there's a couple different places that I think Conrad could fit in. One would be those narrow winger positions in the 3-4-3, tucking inside and, and driving inside. He's got a really strong right foot. So I think having him as an inverted winger on that left side could work or stretching the line on the right could work as well. But for me, I really want to see Conrad De La Fuente play as a wing back. And I've kind of wanted that for a while now. He doesn't have uh, super precise passing in terms of creating things with vertical through balls or anything like that from central areas. His assets are his dribbling, his speed, and he's he's really capable of putting a nice low cross into the box and all of those things scream wing back to me and so the fact that Sampoli uses the three at the back shape with two wing backs either right wing back or left wing back I think that could work perfectly for Conrad De La Fuente minutes are not going to be easy to come by but he's been playing a bit in preseason as from what I've seen a left-sided wing back sometimes as a left-sided midfielder and a four at the back shape so just ahead of that back four but I think this could work out really well positionally really well tactically Marseille like to keep the ball under Sampoli. I like everything about this move. Taylor, are you with me on this, or am I missing something in terms of maybe areas where this might not work out so well? Um, I am
2: with you on basically everything you said that like I thought maybe he'll be one of those narrow wingers. Then in the uh, game that I watched, or the footage I watched from his game uh, against uh, Servette, Swiss team, it was a friendly. They win that game 3-1, to one, and he is playing left wing back, so that was interesting, yeah. and I'm with you that it could be a nice thing in terms of depth for the national team but also maybe diversifies his skill set a bit because I think sometimes he can be slightly one-dimensional when it comes to his attack but I will say that that one goal is basically him being 20 yards out of position and not tracking the Uh. runner he spots it too (laughs) late he then tries to make like the defensive play but can't get there in time and the ball goes in the net and like that can happen in preseason and as long as he continues to improve it will be fine but since it's not his natural position, I definitely have those concerns about what happens if he doesn't sort of snap too quickly, especially under Jorge Sampaoli, a manager who I don't think of as being like the most patient and calm when things aren't going his way. So maybe that will motivate Conrad Delafonte to pick that p- position up that much faster. But John, with you for it being really exciting, I
4: think just that one moment made me think, uh oh, this could go wrong.
0: Yeah, Taylor defending is,
4: defending is for people who don't know how to dribble. So uh, Conrad should not be defending. And hopefully Sempoli knows that.
1: <laughs> Perfect. I hope that's on a plaque above your desk, Joe. I like that <laughs> phrase a lot. <laughs> um, the, your question, Joe, of minutes is, is, is an interesting one, though, because um, Marseille have done a reasonable bit of business so far this summer. But they do have a Europa League campaign this season, which might afford some minutes. Uh, Graham, I'll, I'll bring you in. What are your thoughts on it? I think. It might be, if he's going to play on the left, it might be someone like Luis Enrico who's going to be competing. Depends what
3: formation, but what are your thoughts? Well, De La Fuente is a player that I've I've watched a, a couple times, two or three times for Barcelona. Obviously, um have watched quite a lot of Spanish football. And, and Joe, I'm glad I'm not the only one who thinks wing-back could be his position. I actually thought last season that, that, that is, he could, could have actually made a, a bit of a first team breakthrough at Barcelona with, Coman uh, going to the, the back three with, with the wing backs and obviously Jordi Alba being first choice, but, you know, Junior Fierpo on, on the left side, he's not really impressed. And so I thought De La Fuente might, might get a chance at Barcelona. It didn't, it didn't really pan out that way. So I, I am glad to see him. Moving on, and um, the guys have kind of covered the, from the Marseille side, uh, side of things better than, than I could. I, I, I wouldn't say I, I know their, their squad that, 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 that well, but, um, Marseille, I always have a, a thing for Marseille. I think they're a, a brilliant club who, I always like clubs that are really well integrated with a working class support, and so Marseille are definitely that, and it feels like the whole city revolves around the football club, so I can imagine it'll be, an incredible experience for him, especially if things go well. He will he will become an icon for that club if, if, if things go well. Yeah, hopefully so. Marseille, by the way,
1: it's one of my bucket list stadiums. The Stade Velodrome. Uh, ever since France '98, I want to I've got to get there at some point. It looks looks wonderful. Uh, that's Conrad. We'll hopefully be seeing him in action in League R this coming season. We'll be back with some more questions, hopefully answered after these messages.
0: Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone.
2: So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MACWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code T-S-S. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code T-S-S to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mac Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. This episode is brought to you
0: by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before?
1: Total Soccer Show, we have returned a few more listener questions to tackle before we let you go, dear listener. Raghav Gupta has been in touch. Do you think national team managers who managed in the domestic league harbour favourites or rivalries in their selections? Raghav is thinking of Luis Enrique with uh, Spain and no Madrid players, and he's foreshadowing what Hansi Flick might do with Germany? A very interesting question from Rugoff here. Uh, my instinct is to say it depends on the person and mm-hmm. the kind of guy they are, Taylor.
2: Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I think, broadly speaking, the way I have it is that I think they remember... Familiarity, And they harbor some rivalries, yes. Uh, because I think if you've managed in the domestic league, you get a sense of the style of that country. And I think that's why usually national, team, national teams tend to hire managers from that country. I think they have kind of like steeped in that tradition or understand it really well. Can you all name the last time a team won the World Cup with a manager that was not of the same nationality of the team that won? <laughs> Um, you are correct in that silence it's never happened so well, all right okay um, <laughs> if you have that same like sense of style and understanding if you've managed in that league then I think you're going to understand these players all are from a, a background like I think that's what like Sven maybe struggled with a little bit certainly Fabio Capello is like not understanding the atmosphere the style of play in England at the time and wanting them to play a different style I think Southgate understands it and so he comes in and sort of plays people in a, in a familiar position in a familiar style and gets the best out of them and so I think that is maybe where that familiarity comes to play is that if you know from playing against somebody or having them on your team that they can do this specific role that you need them to do when it comes to pressing or cutting inside or overloading or what it might be yeah I think they probably do remember that and it does give some weight to those players who stand out for whatever reason in that league but I also think you will remember people who got in your face and who annoyed you and who you sort of think of as being negative chemistry people and then you won't include them. And I think there are examples of that, of managers who kind of learned from their club situation, I don't need this player around or I don't really want this player around. And sometimes it doesn't work out, sometimes it does. But I think that's probably where the grudge aspect comes into play.
1: And, yeah. And and with- I, that's just the human condition, isn't it? And mm-hmm. you'd get that in any business team you yeah, were putting together. I would
3: together. say so. Graham yeah i was just to say with with relation to enrique i think also he he obviously favored a lot of uh, barcelona players um and that, that i think that was largely down to how he wanted his spain team to play right. so obviously he he picks Players from a, a team that a club that he knows very well, but also that have a, a distinct style of playing. We saw that from Spain's performances at the Euros. There was a lot of alignment there between those performances and how Barcelona tend to play. So he he selected a lot of players who have either who have either play for that club or who have come through the academy, like Eric Garcia, and that just means he doesn't have to do as much basic coaching on the training ground to get a group of players into a certain mould because they're already, well, a lot of them are already kind of in that mould and he, that gives him a, a platform. Um, so with regards to that specific example, I think that kind of explains why there were so many Barcelona players and from the Real Madrid point of view there was for me there were only kind of two Real Madrid big Real Madrid emissions. it was it's not a very Spain heavy squad at the moment and I think if they had had more obvious players that were suitable for that team he probably would have picked them I'm I'm not convinced there's a massive rivalry thing there it was just more to do with the type of team and the type of performances he wanted
1: yeah I think it's 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 less favourites and rivalries and sort of doing things to to make a point that it's the better the devil you know in many ways isn't it It's kind of the same reason why Harry Redknapp would sign the same players over and over It's 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 what you're familiar with and it's what the kind of system you want to play it's the kind of players you want to use I think it's quite clear that Gareth Southgate for example is very very biased towards his former club Aston Villa by playing uh, Tyrone Mings and Jack Grealish. <laughs>
2: Does that work? I mean, I mean, I think like th- there can be th- those allegations of favoritism are always interesting because it's it's not as though that just happens in a vacuum. It's not like hey, this guy is super good at spades or cribbage or something, so I want him in the team. It's like that player is going to be a coach's favorite because either they've performed really, really well and or like have established themselves as a good leader or are a very good locker room presence and can help sort of in that way. But either way, I think accusations of favoritism can be a little bit strange because oftentimes I think that favoritism is rooted in positive experience, maybe occasionally too long. And when Harry, I don't know, when Harry Redknapp signs, tries to sign Nico Cranchar again in 10 years, then maybe that's (laughs) too far. But for now, I'm less concerned. I think Nick Crencher just lives with Harry Redknapp, by the way. <laughs> he must be his
1: assistant at this point, right?
2: It's just like, it's be. He's got him like behind a, glass in case yeah. of emergency. <laughs> smash in case of a gla- emergency, yeah,
1: yeah, smash In case glass. of appointment, yeah. <laughs> Maybe it's his accountant. Anyway, we should stop talking about that. Uh, Joe, um, Hansi Flick, uh, which Raghav brought up there, surely he's too professional to have uh, favourites and uh, to, to encourage rivalries here, but also he's probably going to pick some buying players.
4: Yeah, I mean, you've got to, right? If it goes to the German national team, you're going to naturally draw in a bunch of Bayern Munich players. Hansi Flick's also an interesting one because he's been involved at the national team level. Uh Certainly his stint with the German national team as an assistant coach to Yogi Love was a lot longer than any of his individual club stints. So he knows what needs to be done to win games at the national team level. He's seen, he's had success with Germany. He's not going to handcuff himself in this process. It's also the case that... There aren't like a ton of super high profile German national team players at this point, in my view, uh, in the Bundesliga on teams that aren't Bayern Munich. Like a lot of them are are playing abroad and playing in different countries or you're drawing in players from Bayern Munich. So I don't think Hansi Flick will have. I don't think there'll be a lot of drama surrounding Hansi Flick's uh, roster selections with the German national team. I think you're quite right there,
1: Raghav. Thank you very much for your question once again. I've got one more for you, gents. One more for you. Here we go, Robert. 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 me. It's been a long day. Robert Cordova says. With college athletes now officially granted rights to profit off their names, images and likenesses, what is the TSS opinion on how this will affect college soccer? So, gents, uh, we know now that college athletes can now um, profit off of their name and their image rights. Colleges, the power brands and TV companies are now not the only one going to be making money off of these athletes. But as to how it affects uh,
2: the game of soccer, that's an interesting one, Taylor. It is, and I would like to yield all my time to Graham Ruffin because I know that Graham's done <laughs> extensive research on college soccer. Um, it is interesting. I, I honestly think it won't have that big of an impact at least short term, maybe long term, but I think about – the obvious areas where there is monetization, and I think for college basketball, certainly March Madness has a lot of that. Uh, sorry, my, my phone is going off, and Scam Likely is apparently calling me. That wasn't disruptive You should at answer all. that. <laughs> yeah, right? Got to. Um, and then I think college football, I believe there are still the college football video games, and I think that's more of a, like – pastime tradition than i would say college soccer is so i doubt you get a ton of commercial revenue from the tv side and i doubt you get that sort of video game money either so i think then maybe it's more localized sponsorships to help facilitate scholarships and pay the players something Uh, but i don't think it has massive ramifications at least not right away joe is it a a case that it might be a
1: different proposition for the men's and women's game to start off with and something else that I think I've mentioned previously on the Soccer 101 episode that we also recorded today was about how the academy system in the men's game is certainly superseding the college route. So uh, maybe the days of a Jordan Morris at Stanford uh, are, are, are going to get rarer and rarer. So it maybe will have less effect on the men's game. as the, uh, Or maybe it will encourage
4: that path. I don't know. I, I think I lean to your initial thought there, Ryan, that it'll have a smaller impact on... College soccer on the men's side, and in, in a not maybe a giant impact, but certainly a larger impact on the women's side. With with the men, it, college is not the primary path to professional soccer, and so I have a hard time believing that this change from the NCAA is going to massively boost participation in college soccer. It's going to massively improve the quality there because it's still in large part on the individual athletes to monetize their own brand. And they will be approached and all of those things, but you need to have a strong brand to, to actually make that an effective monetization strategy. On the women's side, college soccer in the United States is still... The primary path to professional soccer. If you're going to try and become a professional soccer player in the NWSL or abroad or wherever, you're likely – if you're an American, you're likely going to come up through college soccer. And so there's already a broader pool and a more talented pool relative to the professional ranks of women's college soccer athletes relative to the men. So I think an interesting point here is U.S. Women's National Team and Florida State player Jalen Howell, who's already had multiple caps with the U.S., is, is one of the first soccer players at the collegiate level to profit off of their name and their likeness Legally. So apparently Howell and a few other Florida State athletes are serving as ambassadors for different YMCAs in the Florida area, and they're gonna split, uh, $10,000 between them. So it's not a ton of money that's going to be separated out, I believe, between four players. But she, she's a well-known name within the women's soccer world, especially in the United States. And so there's opportunities here for more talented athletes in that space to grow, and and I think that will continue to make women's soccer A more attractive path for many players it's not going to be the only path going forward but I think this will boost participation potentially and and just continue to make that a solid transition as opposed to on the men's side where I don't see it having as big of an effect
1: that's a a well-considered answer Joe Graham does the idea of teenagers monetizing their own brand while at college uh, make you shudder as much as it does for me
3: <laughs> That's my only note in this whole, in this whole question is as a European, the college sports landscape in the States still bends my mind a little bit. Even as someone who's written about American soccer for a number of years, it's still so alien to what we have here. I mean, I played for my college football team, and let me tell you, no one was watching that. Well, at least I hope no one was watching that, those games. <laughs> Uh yeah, it's a very different experience over here.
1: Yeah, I've, I also played for my college uh, football team. We once had two men and a dog watching us. I think that was our record um, uh, <laughs> crowd in the
2: stadium that day. <laughs>
1: so, yeah, very much a different proposition in the U.S., of course. But uh, uh, you weren't calling it ch-
2: college. I don't know what to make of that. You were in college or university? Well, s- I, w- I went to both. So There we go. <laughs> what? Yeah, yeah. Joe, so I col- had this one is- <laughs> where I told somebody I went to college and they were like, You only went to college, and I didn't realize that that was a another big difference between the U.S. and the U.K.
3: Yeah, college, college is—I mean, I'm I'm uh, making sweeping generalizations here—but college is a slightly lower level to university. So a lot of people will go to, will use college as the bridge between high school and university. Yeah, and that's why I did. Yeah, huh. I was just um, substituting know. the word college for university because I was uh, I do that. Cuz you're basically American.
1: Basically so, Graham. Basically so. I'm <laughs> proud of it. Um, Taylor, any any more to add on this question before we head off into the sunset? It,
2: no, I mean, I think I think we've covered it. I'm trying to think of American jokes I can make about Ryan. I'm just I feel like it is appropriately American that you have negative feelings about uh young student athletes wanting to be uh paid for their work and their <laughs> images. I feel like that makes you traditionally uh, uh, an American. So good job, Ryan. That is true. You've you've really bent that one round, Taylor.
3: (laughs) (laughs) You're basically a team owner now, Ryan. (laughs) Oh, boy. Oh,
1: boy. On that note, we should probably wrap up this episode of Listener Questions. Taylor Rockwell, thank you so much for your time today.
2: Yeah, I just hope we've left you enough time to figure out how you can overcharge for season tickets, Ryan. I feel like there's a way that you can do that now that you are a rich American soccer owner.
1: Yeah, I'm going to continue digging myself out of this hole as I say thank you very much, Joe Lowry. You got it, Ryan.
3: <laughs> Graham, thank you very much. Please rescue me. <laughs> no problem. I'm going to sweat myself to sleep in this heat. Joe, send us some aircon, please. An aircon I'll unit do.
2: for Christmas. Thanks. Just a jar of cold air, Joe. Get that in the mail. FedEx it. Do it now. All
1: right. Bye!